everyone. This is Christy, and you're listening to Making Herstory. Happy Women's Equality Day. On this day, August 26th, 100 years ago, the 19th Amendment officially became part of the U.S. Constitution. Today, we are going to discuss the 20th century movement for women's suffrage. And just as we did for the 19th century, I'll look at key players, events, and the ideas that defined the 20th century suffrage movement. Later in the episode, we will hear from a special guest, Dr. Lisa Tatro, who will discuss the legacy of the 19th Amendment and what we can learn from the suffrage movement moving forward. So as always, grab a cup of tea, sit back, relax, and let's get started. So just to recap what we discussed in the 19th century episode, the period between 1890 to 1910 is largely considered by historians to be the suffrage doldrum. And it's because not a lot of suffrage action took place during this time period. There was no federal amendment for action in Congress. And between 1896 to 1906, there were 100-plus measures considered for suffrage in states but only four of them reached the voters and all of them were defeated. During the suffrage doldrum period, NASA went through a shift. Anna Howard Shaw, who was a brilliant but ineffective leader, encouraged NASA to focus on state campaign, mostly because racial tensions in the South would prevent a federal amendment. And so during this time, NASA actively worked to push out women of color from the movement. And Southern states were not required to include black women. By the progressive era, by 1900, the movement was mostly white middle-class women and black women created their own separate movement out of clubs and churches and sororities that became places of activism. Before we talk about the suffrage movement in the 20th century, let's briefly talk about the progressive era. Historians often refer to the progressive era as 1900 to 19. 1919. Although some historians like Rebecca Edwards argues that the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era are not separate movements, but just a continuing back and forth between corruption and political reform. And the thing about the Progressive Era that's important to remember is that it was a broad movement of social and political change in the United States. And the ultimate goal was to create a utopian American society. Historian Michael McGurr argues that ultimately the progressive era failed despite some successes. The progressive era also dramatically impacted the way that people begin to view the government. Prior to the progressive era, Most Americans viewed the government as this outside entity that didn't have an impact on their day-to-day life. With the progressive era, we see not just greater influence of government on daily life, but also the belief that government should be responsible for helping people live better lives. Out of this view, which was influenced by social gospel views of Christianity and an optimism that no longer exists in American politics, came a greater call for reform on a wide variety of issues. Some of these are issues that we take for granted today in our modern context. Labor rights, workplace safety, public sanitation, the busting of large corporations, and then environmental issues. And much of this reform came from the growing middle class that was a result of industrialization. With the progressive era, many of these issues were also connected to broader issues of imperialism because starting in the 1890s, the United States really begins to build a reputation for itself in world politics by getting involved in the Spanish-American War, taking over land in the Philippines and Puerto Rico and Guam and the annexation of Hawaii and the addition of Alaska and becomes intricately linked with these issues of class and race and citizenship. But gender was also shifting. One-fifth of the paid labor workforce was female and many of these women also delayed marriage and motherhood so that they 
could work and attend college. College attendance increased and graduate degrees became more common. Women getting involved in law programs, medicine programs, and PhDs. The progressive era sees birth of a new type of woman and this new woman becomes a symbol of women who were actively involved in the suffrage movement. These were young women, women in their 20s, civically engaged, idealistic, educated, and they had a new consciousness based on the successes of previous generations of activism. There's a misconception that women were not involved in political parties prior to 1920. Women were actively engaged in party politics, and not just in the progressive era, but even earlier. Many women accessed the suffrage issue through the political machine. And it's important to also remember that just as not all women could vote after 1920, not all women couldn't vote prior to 1920. There were women voters, especially in the Western states. Women were active in party politics, and it's through this activism that suffrage gained a new activist ethos, one that Christine Stansel refers to as politics of the mothers versus the politics of the daughters. In this younger generation, we really see a willingness to confront power, and not just confront power, but to do so in ways that were considered incredibly impolite and unfeminine. In 1909, 1910, we start to see the beginnings of a suffrage resurgence. And in 1909, an organization is formed in New York City by a man named Max Eastman. And this organization is called the Men's League for Women's Suffrage. Now, the Men's League was originally a British organization. And I'm not going to go into too much detail because we have an entire episode about men in the movement. Eastman was a labor radical a socialist, a professor in New York at Columbia University, Eastman saw the need for getting men involved in this movement. And he himself was a supporter of suffrage. Then in 1910, out of the blue, something really extraordinary happens. The state of Washington approves suffrage. And this is the first state to approve suffrage since the 1890s. This ignites the suffrage movement. The other thing that's really significant about the year of 1910 as a suffrage resurgence is that Alice Paul and Lucy Burns returned to the United States. Alice Paul was a Quaker. She studied in England, and while she was in England, she joined up with the Women's Social and Political Union run by the Pankhursts. Now, the Pankhursts in Britain were well known for their militancy, even in the United States. And during her time with the WSPU, Paul was arrested numerous times during protests. She was denied political prisoner status and often went on hunger strikes. At one point during a stay in Holloway Prison, which was the most notorious prison in England at the time, she endured force feedings up to twice daily for a month. By the time she returned to the U.S., Paul had already gained notoriety in the American press for her activism in the British movement. Lucy Burns also studied in England. She was also activist with the Pankhurst, and that's actually how Paul and Burns met. Both of these women would create a new momentum in the movement. Some historians today argue that Alice Paul was this maniacal, dictatorial leader who had very little tolerance for other people. Paul's biographer, Christine Lunardini, says that Paul was not any of these things, but in reality, she was just highly motivated, extremely organized, and very passionate about suffrage. She was also personally conservative on a lot of issues that today we would associate with feminism, like birth control and abortion, and a of course, race relation. But she was a strong believer in women's voting rights, and she was a strong believer in the equality of women and men. Paul was the strategist. She was the mind, the thinker, and Burns became the activist, the public voice, the people person. Just like Stanton and Anthony created a strong partnership in the 1800s, Paul and Burns would go on to create a strong partnership that saw the success of the passing of the 19th Amendment. Washington's approval of suffrage in 1910 was followed in the next two years by California, Oregon, Arizona, and Kansas. And these successes gave new life and momentum to the suffrage campaign. When Alice Paul returned in 1912, she joined up with NASA and was immediately put in charge of their congressional committee in Washington, D.C. And one of the things that she wanted to do 
was hold a suffrage parade like the ones that were held in England to draw attention to the issue of suffrage. Hall, along with Burns, planned the parade for the day before the inauguration of Woodrow Wilson. It's important to remember that before this suffrage parade, national protests, especially in Washington, D.C., were almost non-existent. There was a huge controversy surrounding black women and their ability to march in the parade. Hall wanted black women to march in the parade, but the women in D.C. convinced her that it would not be acceptable. And so ultimately, black women, they were not encouraged or allowed to march with mixed delegations. So you did have black women marching in the parade, most notably uh, Delta Sigma Theta from Howard University. And in the Illinois delegation, Ida B. Wells had been nominated to join the suffrage parade, but she was told to march in the rear with the other blacks. Ida B. Wells, being who she was, <laughs> refused and joined the state delegation halfway during the parade route. On the day of the parade, one thing that Alice Paul was very good at was creating spectacle and using imagery to really make her point. What happened during the parade was that suffragists made it four blocks before the male onlookers became violent, rioting and throwing bottles. There were a number of women sent to the hospital and the police did nothing. While it was not the parade that she had planned or initially wanted, Paul was really excited by what happened on the day of the parade because she believed that this nationwide spectacle would create enough sympathy for women suffragists and that they could use the parade as publicity for creating public outcry against the way the women were treated. Paul even pushed for a congressional investigation of the police, which generated greater publicity and even greater support for the federal amendment. That same year, Paul and Burns decide to launch The Suffragist, which becomes the primary newspaper of the suffrage movement during the progressive era. And they also form a separate organization called the Congressional Union, one that publicly embraced the Pankhurst militancy and the violence that was going on in the United Kingdom. NASA, which was more conservative and pushed for state campaigns, really falls out with Paul and Burns over not only their support of the Pankhurst, but also their targeting of Woodrow Wilson for his lack of public support for suffrage. Now, Wilson as a president was not particularly progressive. He was a Southerner a conservative. He was opposed to a federal amendment because he believed it would increase black votes. He was also incredibly racist. Nonetheless, NASA believed in working with the party in power, whereas Paul and Burns wanted to go after Wilson because of his lack of support. And so eventually, Anna Howard Shaw decides to oust Paul and Burns for being too radical for NASA. In 1914, a bigger issue comes to the fray. So World War I begins in Europe, and this creates a lot of tension and fear in the United States about the possibility of getting involved in what becomes known as the European War. And Wilson gains in popularity in large part because he promises that he will not get the United States involved in war. In 1915, there's this huge Eastern state push. And in New York, one of these movements is led by the daughter of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Harriet Stanton Blatch lived in England. She was friends with the Pankhurst. And so Stanton Blatch really tries to unite the working and middle class women on the issue of suffrage in New York. But ultimately, this referendum loses. And it doesn't just lose in New York. Suffrage referendums also lose in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts. What comes of this? is that suffragists, both the conservative NASA and the more militant Congressional Union, begins to realize there needs to be some new tactics to gain a federal amendment that just trying to get it through the states is not going to work. NASA President Anna Howard Shaw resigns and the organization brings in Carrie Chapman Catt to replace her. Now Catt was not new to NASA. She had been president of NASA before. She was more active in the peace movement and in the international suffrage movement when NASA brought her back. She develops what becomes known as the winning plan and so suffragists descend on the Republican and national conventions in 1916 in an effort to encourage the two political parties to put suffrage in their platform. Ultimately, Kat's goal of getting suffrage on the platform and party support for a federal amendment 
fails. She realizes that NASA is going to have to create a two-pronged plan to gain momentum for a federal amendment by supporting state campaigns because Kat believed that the more states that passed suffrage, the greater ability they would have to put pressure on politicians to support a federal amendment. Kat uses all of her political acumen to support Wilson while he's running for re-election. Now, Wilson, despite his refusal to support suffrage during a highly contentious election, works with Harry Chapman Kat. And a lot of the reason that he's willing to work with her is because of Alice Paul. Alice Paul had formed the National Woman's Party out of the Congressional Union and created the National Woman's Party to become a single platform on the federal suffrage amendment. So it was a political party with one issue. What Paul tried to do was get Western women voters to vote against Wilson and other Democrats for not supporting suffrage. This did not work in large part because of the growing tensions of World War I. Many women voted for Wilson because he promised to keep them out of the war. And it's this campaign that really contributes to animosity between Kat and Paul. And while they're on the same side, the National and the National Woman's Party do the work separately and really do not support the other's tactics. Some historians have argued that the National Woman's Party was just this militant fringe group and that it was NASA that was doing most of the work. In her work, Equal Suffrage to Equal Rights, Christine Lunardini writes that the National Women's Party was not a fringe group, but its militant position actually pushed mainstream Americans to support suffrage efforts designed by NASA. In reality, NASA and the NWP worked in tandem with one another, even though they were not working together. So just as we see in other social movements like the Civil Rights Movement, the more militant position actually pushes mainstream America to become more accepting of the issue. One of the tactics that NASA and the NWP disagreed on was the posting of picketers outside the White House. Alice Paul, starting in January of 1917, began to organize picketers outside the White House, and they rotated in shifts so that women were constantly present. Now, this was the first time that a group had ever picketed the White House in American history. And not only that, picketing was considered to be an action that was outside the social norms for women and it created a huge spectacle and drew attention to the issue of suffrage and not all of the attention that it gained was positive. When the United States finally entered World War I, suffragists were torn between whether or not to support the war. Individuals like Kat recognized that if women supported the war effort and worked with Wilson, it would help make the argument that women were deserving of suffrage. And then you had individuals like Paul who refused to support the war effort and continued to protest during the war. This, of course, created enormous opposition to the NWP. It also divided the men of the movement. So, for example, George Creel, who had been a strong advocate for suffrage and a member of the Men's League for Women's Suffrage, decided that during the war he was going to work for Wilson as a leader of the Committee on Public Information, which was essentially the wartime propaganda machine nationwide women began to get involved in supporting the war effort. Just like with the American Revolution and the Civil War, women replaced men in the workforce, participated in the war effort through the selling of victory bonds, through the creation of victory gardens, through nursing, through military service, and all of this became part of the suffrage movement's justification for voting. But Paul continues to picket outside the White House and uses Wilson's own words against him on banners at the pickets. There were a number of arrests and these picketers, while a nuisance in the beginning, eventually became a real thorn in his side (laughs) during the war. They really exposed Wilson for the hypocrite that he was because he framed the argument for why the United States should get involved in the war as one to protect democracy and yet you won't let women vote in the United States. 
The picketers are sent to jail or fined and then would be right back out on the picket line the minute that they're released. Kat and Nasa viewed the pickets as detrimental to the movement. She makes it a point to let Wilson know that Nasa does not support the picketers and that he can support suffrage for women without supporting the militant actions of the NWP. But it's these militant actions that really push the issue of suffrage to the forefront. One of the picket signs and essentially likened Wilson to the German Kaiser, which was the enemy of the United States. And this Kaiser Wilson banner, which encouraged Wilson to take the beam out of his own eye when it came to issues of democracy and enfranchisement, created enormous public protest. Wilson and his administration worked with local officials to create greater punishments for the suffragists who were picketing. And some of them were sentenced for 30 to 60 days, some of them even longer. So for example, Alice Paul was sentenced to seven months imprisonment. A lot of the reason for the response to this militant activism was because of fears of socialism that was growing in 1917, because that was also the year that the Russian Revolution had taken place. And there was a huge fear amongst social conservatives and even anti-suffragists that suffrage was going to bring about greater socialism in the country and that it would ultimately be dangerous for America. While the NWP members are being locked up for picketing, NASA members are still attempting to create public support for the movement. Other states had granted presidential or primary suffrage for women. North Dakota, Ohio, Indiana, Nebraska, and Rhode Island all had passed and allowed for women to vote, at least in the presidential elections. This momentum encouraged NASA to push again for suffrage in New York. After a very long and arduous campaign, New York voters chose to approve women's suffrage. The pickets are still continuing, even as suffragists are being locked up left and right. When one group gets locked up, another group arrives to take their place. And in fact, women come from all over the country to take part in these pickets and to replace the picketers that are being arrested. These pickets and arrests made for media awareness. It's a huge spectacle of civil disobedience. Lucy Burns also becomes sentenced for seven months. She makes multiple trips to prison. And on one occasion, she and the other picketers are taken to Occoquan Prison in Virginia and they are beaten, dragged through the halls. Uh, Lucy Burns is handcuffed to the doors of her cell. And so they launch a hunger strike. These hunger strikes eventually convince the government to release the suffragists because the last thing that Wilson wants while he's trying to fight a war is to have a dead woman in prison just for asking for the right to vote. This creates a huge public outcry when people begin to realize the lengths to which the government is going to silence these people protesters, in large part to combat the negative publicity and because of his developing relationship with Carrie Chapman Catt, Wilson begins to urge Congress to pass a suffrage amendment. Now, he does this not necessarily because he personally supports women's suffrage. As I said, he was very conservative. He believed a woman's place was in the home, but he thinks that the suffrage amendment will help Democrats win the midterm elections in Congress. Before we talk about congressional action on suffrage, let's first talk about how ratification takes place. In order for a amendment to be ratified to the U.S. Constitution, you have to have two-thirds of Congress approve it. So two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, and then it goes to the states and you have to have three-fourths of the states to ratify the amendment. This is why there have not been many amendments to make it to the U.S. Constitution. There have been a lot of proposals for amendments to the U.S. Constitution, but there have not been a lot of successful amendments added. 
1918, when Congress decides to start talking about what is known as the Susan B. Anthony Amendment, the House approves the amendment by one vote over the two-thirds requirement. And then it goes to the Senate, and it fails. Southern senators refuse to even consider the issue of suffrage because they have these fears that granting women the right to vote will make it possible for Black women to vote. This continues into 1919. And while the debate in Congress is ongoing, Michigan, South Dakota, and Oklahoma approve suffrage. So more states are adding on suffrage. The country also is facing a massive flu pandemic in 1918 that stalls the progress of suffrage because the country's trying to figure out how to battle this pandemic and everything else just takes a back seat in much the same way that we see today with the ongoing issue of COVID. Finally, in 1919, Congress decides to take up the issue of suffrage again. What really changes the nature of the debate is that the Democrats lose the midterms and the Republicans controlled Congress. Once again, the House passes the suffrage amendment and now the Senate passes. And again, by one vote more than the two-thirds requirement. So this is just more proof that every vote matters. So in November, during our election of 2020, Please get out and vote, ladies and gentlemen. Every vote matters. By the time Congress passes, now we begin the process of ratification by the states. In this time period, there were only 48 states. So that means that 36 states were required to ratify this amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So today, 50 states, obviously the number would be 38. It was a long, drawn-out process. By the time it got to July of 2020, there were 35 states that had said, yes, we approve this amendment. Eight states that said, no, we're not going to approve this amendment. And three states that just refused to take it up. So it left it down to two possible states, North Carolina and Tennessee. North Carolina was a definite no. Tennessee already allowed for presidential voting rights. So it allowed women to vote for president, but it didn't allow for women to vote in like local and state elections. If you have never had the opportunity to watch a state legislature in action, it is a sight to behold. I worked for the state legislature of Georgia for five years before I became an educator. And I can honestly say that some of the stories that I could tell, it is like nothing else you have ever seen in your life. The amount of backroom conversation conversation and political rallying. There's no real way to describe it. You have to see it in person. In Tennessee, there was a lot of this backroom negotiating, bribing by lobbyists. There was just a lot of corruption going on that had the suffragists worried. The night before the vote was scheduled to take place, after all of this, it came down to the suffragists were short two votes. And so ultimately, the next day when they do a roll call, the suffragists really felt that they were going to lose. They started the roll call and it came down to two men. Harry Burns was the youngest member of the legislature. He was only 24. Even though he himself was personally pro-suffrage, he represented a very anti-suffrage district and he wanted to have a career in politics. And so when it came to Harry Burns, everybody expected him to say no. He had on a red rose, which was a sign that he was an anti-suffragist while the pro-suffrage legislators wore yellow roses. When they called Burns at first, most people didn't even realize that he had changed his vote to yes. It took a while before people realized, hey, Burns just voted yes. Then it got to a man named Banks Turner. And Banks Turner didn't say anything, so it passed by him. So it was essentially a tie. And then Banks Turner stands up and asks that his vote be changed to yes. In large part because of Harry Burns, the 19th Amendment was ratified by one vote. So again, more evidence that your vote matters. And when asked later why Harry Burns changed his vote, it turned out that he had gotten a letter from his mom 
urging him to, quote, be a good boy and help out Mrs. Cat because his mom, like him, also was a suffrage supporter. Harry Burns made the distinct decision to ruin his political chances at re-election and to ruin his political career to stand up for his principles and what he believed in. And it is because of Harry Burns and also because of Banks Turner that the 19th Amendment was ratified by Tennessee on August 18, 1920. Eventually, the amendment went to the United States Secretary of State Bainbridge Colby. He decided that he wanted to avoid any drama between NASA and the NWP. Both of them wanted to take credit for the amendment. Both of them wanted to be present for the signing. Colby was like, I don't want any drama. I just wanna sign this amendment and get it over with. He signs it at his home in the wee hours of the morning with no women, no cameras, just him and his Secretary of State seal. That is how the 19th Amendment got added to the U.S. Constitution on August 26, 1920. Antis did attempt to legally challenge the ratification all the way to the Supreme Court. In 1922, the Supreme Court denied the Antis claim and the 19th Amendment remained law. Even though the 19th Amendment was ratified, there were still women who were not able to vote in the 1920 election. Two states, Georgia and Mississippi, refused to extend the registration deadlines allowing women to vote. And this was an effort to block women from voting because they didn't agree with the 19th Amendment. The 19th Amendment was added to the Constitution 72 years after Seneca Falls. And it is important to remember women fought for this right to vote. This was not something that was given to them. It was not something that was granted to them. It is one of the longest running struggles for social democracy in the history of our country. And it's one that took place even after the 19th Amendment. Some Southern states, even though it was federal law and they couldn't prevent women from voting, refused to acknowledge the 19th Amendment. So even though they couldn't prevent white women from voting, they didn't ratify it to their state constitution until much later. So some examples, Maryland in 1958, Georgia in 1979, the year I was born, Mississippi, which was the last state to ratify the 19th Amendment, did it in 1984. So if you wonder if we still need feminism and if you wonder if we still need women's rights, the answer to that question is yes, we do. And then it's also important to remember that women of color in the South and in other parts of the country were not allowed to vote. Now, in some parts of the country, they were. So, for example, Ida B. Wells voted in Illinois because Illinois allowed women to vote and they didn't prevent black women from voting. But in other parts of the country, women of color were very much prevented from voting. So Native American women were not made citizens until 1924, and they were not allowed to vote until 1957. Chinese in 1943, Indian women in 1946, Japanese women in 1952, these women were not allowed to vote until these years. And then African Americans until 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. So voter suppression and intimidation is something that continued after the 19th Amendment, especially towards women of color and men of color. And it's an issue that continues to be present in modern America. We see it with allegations of voter fraud, with restrictive ID laws, with limited polling places in minority neighborhoods, the targeting of mail-in ballots, and the targeting of early voting opportunities. This is one of the things about the 19th Amendment that I think is really worth celebrating. Even though it wasn't a perfect amendment, and even though not all women were able to take part of voting because of it, it is still a step in a milestone in U.S. history, and it is one that is worth celebrating. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. At this time, please welcome my distinguished guest, Dr. Lisa Tatro from Carnegie Mellon University, she received her doctorate from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and she is an associate professor who specializes in the history of American women and gender, 
focusing on social movements, American democracy, and the politics of memory. Dr. Tetro serves as a historical consultant for a number of exhibits on the 19th Amendment, as well as the new PBS special, The Vote, and Ancestry.com's Women's Suffrage Project. Her first book, The Myth of Seneca Falls, Memory in the Women's Suffrage Movement, has been widely received with high praise and was the winner of a prestigious book award. And you've heard me mention her book a number of times on my podcast. Welcome, Dr. Tetro, to Making Hursery. Thanks. It's so great to be with you. I wanted to take an opportunity to ask you questions, not just about the 19th Amendment, but also about your research and women's suffrage in general. What influenced your decision to specialize in the history of American women and gender, and what interested you specifically about the women's suffrage movement? So I became a historian uh, somewhat backwardly. Uh, I backed into becoming a historian, and I also backed into women's suffrage, much in the way that a lot of our life is born of intention, and that and um, the serendipity that happens on the way is sort of how I ended up where I am. I was a French major in college, went abroad, had absolutely no interest in history. I thought it was boring facts from the past and had to take a two-part history class when I lived in France. You know, I was a 19-year-old rural Midwestern kid and France seemed pretty strange to me. And the contemporary France that I was living in made so much more sense when I understood its history. And that was the first time I understood without being able to articulate it at that time that history is living and not dead. And I think that ended up fundamentally shaping my curiosity about history and my interest in history. So for me, it's always been a living subject and not a dead subject. I traveled then a lot around Europe when I was there and went to lots of places I knew nothing about the history of uh, and found that when I learned the history, I understood the present so much better. Then I got home to the United States and I realized I didn't know a whole lot about my own history. And I became more and more interested in the ways in which history centered who I was as a person and eventually found my way into U.S. women's history. I got into grad school and history was still pretty new to me. I had to do a first year research paper and I thought I would pick the most obvious women's uh, history topic possible because I figured that would be the easiest one. Um, so I picked <laughs> women's suffrage. And then the next thing you know, I became a suffrage historian, which interestingly, I was advised against by professors of mine in grad school who said, you'll never get a job studying a sort of dead white women's topic. That's interesting that you talk about backing into history because I took a similar path. I was going to be a music education major because mm -hmm. I, I was a band student in high school. Yep. Yep. And I played the French horn and I, I loved music, but very quickly realized in college that music was my, it was my outlet. It was my passion. It wasn't what I wanted to do full time. Mm -hmm. And I was taking all of these history courses and just loving them. And when it came time to pick a new major, my mom said, well, why don't you just choose history? You're always taking history classes. You're always loving it. Why not just choose that? And my dad, the first thing he asked me was, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. as a suffrage historian, do you see any parallels between the experience of the women's suffrage movement and what is going on now with public protests and greater attention that's being called to women's issues and equality with the, the Women's March in 2016, the Me Too movement more recently? Do you see any connections that would make suffrage easier to connect with for an audience that's not a suffrage historian? To me, it's all connected. And that's one of the things that has been, I think, most uh, transformative for me as I grow into being a historian is just never stopping to see the connections. Um, I feel like no matter how long I do this work, I will continually be learning about new and different connections. And even this anniversary moment has shown me and taught me quite a lot about the interconnectedness of all of this. It is obviously connected to all of the issues that you just raised in the sense of how do we fight for the safety of our bodies? How do we fight for um, the dignity of our lives? How do we fight for autonomy? How do we fight for basic decency? How do we fight for you know a roof over our head, a doctor to care for our bodies when we're sick? All of those things. And all of those are tied up with people's desire to participate in the governing system that that controls good portions of their lives. Um, and so those are all connected to me. Uh, and the fight for women's suffrage even 
is connected to me to a much broader history of voting rights in the United States, which extends far and beyond the history of the bounded chapter that we tend to tell about women's suffrage and is connected to the very election that we are facing right now. Absolutely. Uh, and the voter suppression that is going on en masse and the millions, tens of millions of women who were voting previously and who cannot vote right now. And so to me, this is a very much a living history in the spirit of which I came to history. I continue to see it that way, that the history helps us inform the present. It doesn't just give us interesting anecdotes from the past. So much of what we know about the women's rights and suffrage movement comes from suffragists primarily. Stanton and Anthony, the history was preserved and promoted in a way that really put them kind of front and center in the movement and eliminated a lot of other voices. How has this recording of history, how has it impacted the overall narrative of suffrage history? How can then historians and educators change the narrative of suffrage history to be more inclusive of some of those voices? Yeah, those are such important questions. Um, I think maybe the first thing I would say about all of that is that we have to think about it as a journey rather than a, a, you know, a one or a two or a three-part correction that we have to make. That it has to be part of a much larger project of learning to see and then learning to re-speak and learning to reevaluate. And that is a really ongoing journey that we must all commit ourselves to. I think I would say that as I'm about to then try to offer some pathways by which we might first see how we've been misled and secondly, how we might begin to um, re-see and re-speak without thinking that what I'm offering is a prescription for how to, how to accomplish that and you know, end up in the circle of success at the end. The thing that I think many Americans don't understand about history, and it's no fault of their own, I didn't understand it either, is precisely how history is in fact how people in the present make sense of the world. That history is a living, breathing, evolving, changing, contested, leveraged political beast. There are facts that are true, but those facts can be assembled in all kinds of different ways to tell very, very different stories. And often those stories can be at great odds with one another. And it doesn't mean that all stories go. Like we can't say slavery never happened. We can't say the Holocaust didn't happen. Although, you know, there are people who try to assemble the facts to make right. those points. But what that's about usually when people are doing that is not about what the past should say, so much as what the present state of the world ought to be, who ought to be in charge, who ought to have power, who ought to uh, be the ones who know best, who ought to get a slice of the pie, who ought to, very much in that way that I came to history originally understanding that it was living, I went into the past and was really curious about how people in the past told their own history as a political project in their present. And what I looked at was how suffragists in particular, a particular slice of suffragists, and here we're talking about Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and a handful of other people, but I'll focus on those two. They more than any other mainstream white suffragists understood that history, that writing history was a form of political activism. Many of their allies and their rivals did not make that a piece of their political activism, the writing of history. And one of the things we forget about Stanton and Anthony is that they spent most of their post-Civil War lives, which is the bulk of their activism, um, Stanton saddled with children, you know, at the beginning, you know, the decade before the Civil War, and Susan B. Anthony is coming into her own as an activist. And then the two of them really flower and grow into their full political selves after the American Civil War, partly because Stanton doesn't have kids at home anymore. And in that growth and in the development into their full political power, they spend um, an incredible amount of time writing, collecting, and documenting a history of the suffrage campaign. And it grows well beyond what they originally imagined. And in some ways they were some of the 19th century's greatest women's historians. And we forget that part of them. We think of them just as suffrage activists. But when you chronicle and take a look at how much history they wrote, it's amazing. That became interesting to me. And it, again, it took me a while to understand all this. I didn't know when I headed into this project, but I, 
I would read the history that they wrote because when I started my project, there wasn't a whole lot of secondary literature on post-Civil War women's suffrage. Um, and I would read their account, which is this massive three volume, uh, thousand pages each history of women's suffrage. And they were writing history that they were often not involved in. So they were collecting documents. They were archiving documents. Right. Um, I know they, I know they even asked Lucy Stone, who was one of the leaders of ASA, which was the rival organization, if she wanted to be a part of it. And she essentially told them where they could shove it yeah, <laughs> because she, sure did. she thought a, a history of women's suffrage was too complex complicated to boil down to one narrative and she felt like it was going to leave out a lot of voices and the real irony is that her voice until recently was one of the ones that a lot of people don't know i mean most people in american history classes have at least heard of stanton and anthony but not very many at least in my experience as a teacher have heard of lucy stone yep so. yep and one of the arguments I make in the book is that as Stanton and Anthony wrote history, they did so both for posterity, but they also did so for the present world in which they lived to fight political battles that they were engaged in, including a fight with Lucy Stone. Lucy Stone didn't like their approach to activism. She didn't like their approach to suffrage. She didn't like the entanglements that they brought to the movement, including all kinds of sex radicals and, you know, racist accusations and you know, opposition to black men's voting. And I mean, it was Stanton and Anthony were in deep trouble in the 1860s and the 1870s. We look back now and we sort of celebrate them as if everyone fell in line behind them with love and adoration for, you know, the full duration of the campaign. And that's just not true. That's really the end of the story read back onto the beginning. That's Stanton and Anthony's rendering of the history, you know, one that we adopt. And yeah, as they're starting to write history, one of the arguments I make in the book is that they do it precisely because they're in so much hot water. I think they have, they have an appreciation for the power of historical narrative, but I don't think they're rubbing their hands together and sort of saying, here's how we'll get them, you know. But that realization really grows over the time, and they realize that it's powerful to be able to control the story. And they start writing a history that the first thing they do is they're in trouble with Lucy Stone. They're in trouble with a whole bunch of other people after the American Civil War. The 15th Amendment has passed Congress that will enfranchise Black men, but it has left women out. And Stanton and Anthony in this old feminist abolitionist coalition go against Frederick Douglass and others and say, we refuse to support the 15th Amendment. If it's a matter of priority, educated white womanhood first and ignorant Black men be damned. And many of their rivals are just horrified that they wouldn't see this as an important step toward the larger project of universal enfranchisement. But they don't, and they bolt, and they break. And then they bring in a free lover into the movement, Victoria Woodhull. Woodhull. I love her oh, so much. She's so great. <laughs> I think there's probably going to be a biopic coming out about her soon, I would oh, think. Um, I can't wait. And she... She has exploded norms right and left. Stanton and Anthony have invited her into suffrage activism, um, courted her. And, you know, Lucy Stone and others are just appalled at the way in which Stanton and Anthony are just constantly raining bad press upon the campaign, making it to their mind really um, radical and dangerous decisions that are going to jeopardize the cause. And so Stanton and Anthony are, are, large, are heavily marginalized by many, many activists in the, in the you know, early 1870s. They're wildly supported by others. And one of the things they start to do when they're so embattled is start saying the movement began at Seneca Falls. And this is a story no one is telling up at, the, at this point. No one says the movement began at Seneca Falls. By saying the movement began at Seneca Falls, they have a very usefully exclusive story, which centers the two of them. It was a local impromptu convention. Nobody knew anything about it really, except for the people who threw it and organized it and made an announcement in the local paper. So there were lots of women's rights activists already out on the scene, but they wouldn't have come to Seneca Falls because they wouldn't have known about it. And it was hastily organized and never really, there were only a couple of days before they announced it and it was held. And so by arguing that the movement begins at Seneca Falls, one of the things they do is say, we are the proper, um, we are in fact the mothers of feminism. Therefore, we are the proper interpreters of feminism. We originated it. Therefore, whatever we do in the present is in fact the right path. So as activists are adjudicating, you know, which of these two organizations, Stanton and Anthony's or Lucy Stone's is the right one to follow. Mm -hmm. They start making arguments that you should follow us because we are in fact feminism's true foremothers. Therefore, We're the gatekeepers. We are, therefore we are in fact, it's, it's right interpretation, right? And then they will elaborate that argument over the rest of their lives. And in so doing, they will, they will really augment and build their leadership partly through claiming that they are the movement's most important leaders. And they will eventually sideline Lucy Stone in reality, she will fade out by the 1890s as a strong activist and die in 1893. 
and then they'll phase her out in memory, right? Because Lucy Stone said, like you said, when they wrote her and said, you know, can you contribute to our book? She said, no, you know, we have work to do. We don't have time to be writing history. We have to be making history. There is really nothing about Lucy Stone in the history of women's suffrage that is at all commensurate with the status and the, and the work that she did. And her daughter would say at the end of her life, when Stanton and Anthony's narrative had become so dominant that they were the center of the campaign, and really by the end of their lives, they had become the center of the campaign. Her daughter will say, we made a big mistake not writing our own history. Lucy Stone herself will start to realize it at the end of her life. In the 1880s, as Stanton and Anthony have pretty much created this narrative as one that um, most suffragists are adopting, Lucy Stone will write her sister-in-law and say, we need to puncture the bubble that Seneca Falls was the beginning of women's suffrage. So all this is to say that the stories we have been handed down, to go to your very, your very original question, the stories that we have been handed down are in fact stories that served political purposes in the 1800s. And we should be cautious about telling those stories today because they come with lessons that are quite exclusionary, that are quite misleading in many cases, and that center a certain group of white women who were not the entirety of the campaign in terms of white women, and were certainly not the entirety of the campaign in terms of what other women were fighting for. So first we have to just see that the stories we've been handed are in fact constructions and are not the, the truth. And I can't tell you the number of people who will say to me, but Seneca Falls is true. And I'm like, it's true as a fact. It's true as a convention that existed. It's not true that it began feminism, right? That is an interpretation somebody had to make because you can begin feminism anywhere. So that's kind of the seeing. And then, you know, to rewrite that history, what we have to do then is go read some other stories. And those stories luckily are being written in robust fashion of late. We have to read the stories of Lucy Stone and that whole other branch of the mainstream suffrage movement from the 1800s. And then we have to read the stories of other women who came in and out of the suffrage movement the mainstream white suffrage movement, but were building movements and alliances that were very different than the mainstream white suffrage movement would support. And those were often women of color who found a white movement to be very supportive of white supremacy, often very dismissive of women of color, black women, indigenous women's own concerns, and were themselves quite, quite domineering and quite maternal in their sense of other people's capacity. So we have to also realize that the suffrage movement is itself a misnomer. It was one movement among many. There is no single movement for women's voting. There were many, many movements for women's voting. And Stanton and Anthony were at the core of one of those and wrote it, but they made it seem like it was the whole of the story when it was not. It was only a part of the story. And we have to take this narrative well past 1920 because part of what happens is the, the story becomes very neat, 1848 to 1920, that's the story of women's suffrage. And right. that itself is completely misleading. Women don't win the right to vote in 1920 and millions and millions of women aren't voting in 1920 and millions and millions of women are voting before 1920. So there's all kinds of ways in which the narratives we've been handed just don't work. Um, so that leads us into my next question, which is that 1920 can be a very problematic marker in women's history because it didn't fully enfranchise all women and it didn't acknowledge the women who could vote beforehand. So mm -hmm. as a historian, in your opinion, particularly as a suffrage historian and one who really focuses on public memory, should 1920 be celebrated at all? Does it deserve its status as this watershed moment in women's history? And if not, then what should we celebrate in its place? I don't see my role as a historian as deciding what we should and shouldn't celebrate. That has to be part of a public democratic process. Okay. I see my role as a historian to help people understand what happened. And then they can decide, you know, and we can decide as a community and I can as a citizen, what we want to commemorate and what we don't. And we see ourselves engaged in that discussion right now, right, about Confederate monuments and Confederate Absolutely. flags. History is not a set of facts that I can go back in the past and tell you the exact right interpretation of. It is a process that we are creating together in the present. And so I can't be the ultimate arbiter and judge of that. I can just render, you know, offer some useful stories. And one of the stories that I've been trying to offer in the centennial is that we have a real misnomer around the 19th Amendment. So I've been trying to just correct misunderstandings about the 19th Amendment, where I talk about the mythology of Seneca Falls, which I don't mean to say to call it false so much as to recognize that it's an event and a story and that the story has power. The 19th Amendment is also an event and a constitutional uh, revision and a story. 
And the story we have around the 19th Amendment is that all women won the right to vote. And we have been having a hard time reconciling that with the fact that not all women got the right to vote. Because the fact of the 19th Amendment is that it said states may not discriminate in voting on the basis of sex. That's all it said. Did not say you may, you know, women are enfranchised heretofore, or the right to vote that exists in the Constitution is now open to women. There is no right to vote in the Constitution, which shocks most Americans. They think somehow there is a right to vote. And so women didn't get led into a right to vote. The Constitution leaves voting up to the states. States get to appoint voters. So states have historically made long lists of things you have to be to be a voter. And in that long list of things, which has changed over time and which social movements have pressured states to amend and revise and change, has been the word male. And many states drop the word male prior to 1920. In fact, the entire West drops the word male before 1920. So across the West, you do not have to be male to vote anymore. And women are voting on the same terms as men. That doesn't mean all women are voting, as we'll get to in a minute. but. What the 19th Amendment does is say to the rest of the states who've not yet done that, cut it out, you can't do that anymore. It is now unconstitutional to call voters male, right? You can't require that. It's really significant. Revising the Constitution is a big deal. And striking down, the feds have been really reluctant over time to say to the states what they can and cannot do when it comes to voters. So getting the federal government to commit in that sense to striking voter qualification is really a massive, a massive undertaking and a really significant one. And it helps all women. It's just not sufficient to get all women to vote because it leaves in place all the other list of state restrictions that are still on the books. It's also huge, the 19th Amendment, not just in that it bars that as a voting qualification, but in the 19th century and in the beginning of the 20th century, everyone thought you should differently distinguish on the basis of sex because men and women were different biological creatures. We aren't going to get the federal government and the courts to recognize sex discrimination, you know, different treatment as discrimination until the 1970s. So in many ways, it's quite remarkable in that regard, too, that you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex is a, also a pretty radical and new concept and will lead Alice Paul to say, okay, let's take that and extend it. She'll propose the ERA. Let's not have any discrimination on the basis of sex. And, you know, that she proposes that in 1923. And, you know, that still hasn't won. But so the 19th Amendment is absolutely a historic and monumental achievement. What it leaves in place are all the other state restrictions that are still barring thousands and millions and millions of women from voting. Because voting has this long list of things that you have to be in order to qualify to be a voter, it's such a complex history because depending on who you are, you might have 12 disqualifications. And depending on who this other person is, they might only have one disqualification, which is gender, right? So there's no one point at which women get the right to vote because A, there is no right to vote. So that's not what women get. What they get is the ending of a disqualification that stood in their way. And still to this day, states can make long lists of what you have to do in order to vote. We are in the midst of them doing that again. And so millions of women are not able to vote right now because states are passing all kinds of different things which sound logical and reasonable, but are often, again, administered fraudulently, meant to exclude as many people as possible. We think we're over that because we often tell the story of women's suffrage as a kind of broader triumphalist narrative whereby it's the steady opening of an American democracy. And really what all voting historians would tell you is the social movement pressure to open democracy and to open it to more and more voters has always been met with a kind of status quo resistance to opening that and to pushing back against any openings that are won. And that story is still ongoing. And so we are in the midst of that right now. And I think when we say women won the right to vote, we assume somehow that that right is protected and that it can't be abridged right now. And if it is abridged, then you must have done something to deserve it, right? And it blinds many, many Americans to the fact that no, you could still take away people's voting access because they don't have a right to vote. Some people would argue what we need to do is just quit fighting restrictions in the states and start arguing for a federal right to vote for whatever entity we want to decide. Citizens, I don't know, you know, that would be a part of a democratic process. But so the work I'm doing around the 19th Amendment isn't to celebrate, but so much just to say like, the stories we tell now shape how we understand our ability to turn out a robust democracy in the fall. And, you know, this fall, does that matter to us or does it not matter to us? If you want right. to celebrate the 19th Amendment, then what are you doing to protect women's voting rights right now and men's voting rights? I think of it more that way than is this a happy and good story or, a you know, unhappy and bad story. To me, it's an instructive story. Right. And for me as an educator, I celebrate 1920 with my students, but I also mm -hmm. have to be very 
mindful of the fact that the majority of my students are African-American and under the 19th Amendment would not have qualified in the states for voting because of all of the things that you mentioned. And so I always have a conversation with the students about what 1920 really means, what the 19th Amendment really means, and all of the progress and the work that had to be done following just to make it accessible for all women. And then even like you said, even still, you know, it's still not accessible. We still have barriers. We still have ways of trying to undermine the legitimacy of voting in different ways. The fight for voting rights is ongoing. I think of the suffrage movement as a particular chapter of the fight for voting rights. I I think we can't let those white women stand in for all of people's fight for voting rights. Um, So to me, that's part of the problem that Stanton and Anthony created, whereby that is the story as opposed to a story. And the suffragists themselves said, we're done. You know, the mainstream white suffragists, they said, no, 1920 is a victory. And when all those women of color came to them and said, we still can't vote. Let's fight on. Those white women said, no, thank you. Our fight's over. We, we won victory. And then the other thing I would say is that just as we can't say when women won the right to vote, we can't say not all women of color could vote after 1920. Because again, it depended where you lived. And it depended how many of those hurdles you had to clear in your particular state and what your identity was. So there were Black women voting before 1920. And in the wake of 1920, Black women across the South flood en masse to the polls and try to vote. And some of them succeed. It's just, it's one of these things that we as Americans like to talk about categorically because we think there must be like this group is allowed to or this group isn't allowed to because we keep thinking about this as having kind of universal federal rules around it. But what it really has is entirely local governance with a little bit of federal oversight saying, ah, you can't do those four things, but you know the, the rest of it's up to you. It's so complicated that it makes it very, very hard to, to make generalizations about. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Especially I think when you're teaching these kinds of complicated topics to high school age students, Absolutely. not because they don't yep. understand it, but just because no. you yeah. find yourself having to make time concessions. And I, I had this conversation yeah. with someone in a previous podcast about how as a historian myself, I want to have all these complex, you know, mm-hmm. conversations, but then what my students need to know for testing, 1920, 19th Amendment, Stanton and Anthony, and then you got to kind of hit it and move on. And so it just reinforces all of those narratives that we've been taught about suffrage. Yep. And that's part of where we ought to fight about high school curriculum, right? Absolutely. There is a fight about high school curriculum, right? Because it is such an essential piece of how we train citizens if we don't fight about what the content of it is. But yes, when we want to tell quick short stories, we sometimes fall into this kind of, you know, somewhat inaccurate and often accommodating white supremacy uh, kind of narration. And, you know, many people then would amend 1920 by saying, well, then it's the 1965 Voting Rights Act that's finally the victory. You know, okay, so 1920 is not the victory, it's a middle. 1965, finally women of color win the right to vote when the feds go down to the states and say, you know what, literacy taxes, no good. The way you're not registering people, no good. We're going to send in federal people. They're going to register people. We're going to deputize African-Americans to register. We're going to oversee your elections. We're going to, where you've had a long history of discrimination, say that you need to pre-clear any voter qualification law with the Department of Justice at the federal level to make sure that it's not racially discriminatory, right? I mean, the Federal Voting Rights Act was a massive piece of legislation that was one of the most successful pieces of civil rights legislation, let in millions of voters of color across the South. Registration numbers go from in the single digits to 65 to 85%, you know, in just the space of like two to three years. That again, we like to have a good triumphal ending, right? Where American democracy is always opening. But again, then the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in in, in, uh, in the Shelby County v. Holder decision and said, you know what? That discrimination thing is a thing of the past. This was the main (laughs) argument. We don't need a law anymore to protect against that discrimination because the discrimination is over. So you, federal government, can no longer have oversight over the state's It's constitutionally a state's prerogative to do this. And so, no, we nullify that. And now the states are, like we said, coming up with 19 new ways to discriminate against voters and the feds can't stop them necessarily because the Voting Rights Act, that part of it's been invalidated. There are things that are still valid about the Voting Rights Act, but it's just about to expire as a piece of legislation and it may for the first time never be reauthorized. So, you know, it's just... 
that push and pull factor is what what's always going on. So I never want to talk about history in the present where I'm not acknowledging that push and pull factor so that we in the present are equipped to decide which part of that push and pull dynamism that we want to be on. I had a history teacher once who referred to history, not as a timeline, but a pendulum, because you're always going back and forth on issues. And there's always this push and this pull. It's never a forward momentum of any kind. You do have forward moments and victories, but then you also have push and backlash and you have to keep pressing forward. I've always loved that analogy because I think it just describes history so well, especially American history, just because of all of the the dynamics associated with it. Yep. And I think if we keep teaching our history, which we often do as a story of forward, just forward progress, right? Which is, again, the, the kind of conventional story around American democracy, a steady opening to the point of final victory. Then we miss the ways in which there are people with real grievances right now in the present. And we, you know, people who don't share a history that where they have an understanding of those grievances can't understand what those grievances are or how to redress them because they think they've already been redressed. And so those people must just be whiners, you know? And, right. Um, so again, like it matters how we teach our history, right? Absolutely. Because it matters to who we are as a nation right now and who we can hear and who we can see and what we can understand. Dr. Tatcher, thank you so much for coming in and having this talk. And I wish you a very happy suffrage anniversary for thank the you. remainder of 2020. Great. And I wish you as well. Thanks for your podcast and all your efforts around these issues to try to bring out a public dialogue and your work on the just incredibly important front lines of history teaching in, in high school classrooms, which is a job that I admire tremendously and, and think does far more important civics work than we recognize. So thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Lisa Tatro. That concludes this episode. Thanks for listening. Happy Women's Suffrage Day, Women's Equality Day, and I hope that you will join me again on Making History.